When you read through the Gospels, um, you notice that Jesus didn't write anyone off. There's just so many reasons where we'll make a judgment that that person is hard-hearted and they won't listen. But Jesus loved and reached out and sought every individual. And since he was the Savior, the perfect teacher, he could get under the wall, over the wall, around the wall that anybody would erect in order to teach them that God loved them and he saved them and forgave them. And today we're going to see him do that with the woman at the well. He did it with Pilate. He reached out to him, the rich young ruler, Peter, even Judas to the very end. And now he, we're going to see him in John 4 in the region of Samaria, which was a region where there weren't as many Jews as there were people of mixed race, Samaritans that had a, a very different view than the Jews, uh, but not as different as the they're out-and-out pagans. Have the, the folder in front of you because I'm going to read and to comment throughout it for our mor morning devotion. It's just a, a little devotional Bible study as we think about Ash Wednesday. So Jesus has got some disciples with him, and they're doing something that Jews normally didn't do. They're traveling straight through Samaria going up to Galilee because there just were a lot of problems with the, the Samaritans and the Jews, and a lot of people just avoided it altogether, and they would head across the Jordan River and go up the east side and then come back into Galilee. But instead, Jesus went straight through because he was seeking people from the Samaritans to know about him as well, which is something that was foreign to the disciples. They went into town to buy some food. They, they were hand-to-mouth uh, society, and they needed food for the day. So here we go. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. And they were getting more and more, the Pharisees were more and more critical and it was too soon for Jesus to come under that kind of scrutiny. So he left Judea in the south and he went back once more up to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Now that's 2,000 years earlier. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Um, when you find out later that she's been married many times and she's living with a man outside of marriage, you kind of get a feeling for what her life has been like. She, um, she's been a big part of the problem, but so have the five men she married and the man she's living with. And she doesn't trust men. And there's a, a, a social moray that Jewish men would not talk to women in public. They might be making a pass at them. And so she doesn't trust him when he asks for a drink. She's almost like saying, that's a really bad one-liner that you would be a Jewish man asking me for a drink of water. You shouldn't even be coming out to talk to me out here, and you know that. So she's, she's way in a different place than where Jesus is. But that doesn't 
bother him, does it? He loves us so much. He just keeps talking to us. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. I'm not here to take. You women know what that means when a man lets you know that. I'm not here to take anything from you. I'm here to give. I want to give you, I want to give you something that's living water. Living water in the shallowest sense meant moving water like a, a brook or a river where a, a well was still water or a, or a um, pond is still water. And living water, because it's moving across the rocks and naturally filtering, was always known as something more fresh. So Jesus is using that metaphor. I would have given you something much more fresh than you have. Of course, he's talking about spirituality and salvation and love, and she's still sort of, sort of stuck and sort of maybe likes to be stuck on the shallow because it's safer. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where? Can you get this living water? And now, now she has a kind of a chip on her shoulder, and it has a religious underpinning because even though you find out later she's been married five times and living with a man outside of marriage, she's still culturally religious. She listens to the stories in the Samaritan party line. And ever since the northern tribes separated from the southern tribes and made the mountains up in Samaria, the place to worship rather than the temple. They've, this argument, this, it's kind of like this, the standard, you know the basic difference between Democrat and Republican is, is the fiscal idea that Democrats want government to help more and Republicans want government to be smaller. It's kind of like you can just hear it. She says, are you greater than our father, Jacob? Um, that's way, way back in history. Who gave us the well to drink and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock. It's a clear rebuff. It's wanting to, she's wanting to lead the conversation and, and guide it away from anything too close to home. And she's surly. She's just a surly woman. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That thirst he's talking about is the thirst in every soul, and that's in our soul. That's why we're here on Ash Wednesday morning. It's a thirst to have peace in the love and acceptance and the eternal life of God. We want to know we're going to be okay with God and he's okay with us and we're going to live forever. Everybody has that thirst. It's called the natural knowledge. And everybody knows how thirsty they are because they know how fallen they are. That's a deep knowledge everybody has. He says, you could have that thirst quenched, but she's still on the surface. The woman said, sir, Give me this water so I don't have to get thirsty. I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. We'll never know until maybe glory. Maybe we won't care when we get there. But I don't know if she really gets it that he's pushing her down to the deep level. She's, he's peeling back the layers of the onion. I kind of think she does. She just doesn't want to go there. But she may just be clueless because sometimes we're willfully 
out to lunch, and so because it's safer to us, we believe. Sometimes it's we're we're just out to lunch. We just don't get it. He told her he's gonna he's gonna now peel back the layers of the onion that cover her heart. Go call your husband and come back. Remember how she started? Are you a Jew? Asking me for a drink, kind of insinuating you're it's a bad one liner. He says, Go call your husband. This is legit. I'll talk to both of you about it. It'll be for for both of you. And of course he knows what he's doing. I have no husband, she replied. Um, if you could picture a different setting that's more like our culture, uh, 6.30 in the evening, a man and a woman are sitting at the bar next to each other. One came in separate from the other. They've never met each other before. And he says, tell me, tell me about your married life. And she says, I have no husband. What are they both thinking? Well, maybe there's a way we could talk a little deeper, right? She says, I have no husband. She's not committed to that man she's living with. She's alone. Even while she lives with him. She's selfish. She's not a victim. Nobody really is completely a victim. Not when it comes to sin and, and needing a savior, right? And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. Because he... He's here to save her soul. The fact is, you've had five husbands. And the man that you live with now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Remember, according to her, he doesn't even know she's living with somebody. So when he says all that, he's saying, woman, you are a self-made mess. And she's thinking, whoa, he knows about me. He understands a lot more about people than me. He's, there's something supernatural going on with this guy. He must be a prophet because prophets have special words of wisdom, special words of knowledge given as a gift, and they can know what pe about people's private life that they don't share with them to get, give them knowledge. They just know he's a prophet. I'm in the presence of a prophet who knows that I'm a failure. I think we better argue about religion a little bit more to keep me comfortable because this is getting kind of uncomfortable. So she says, sir, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. Remember Jeroboam, he separated the ten tribes to the north and said worship on this mountain. And that's the whole uh, uh, northern tribes and then the Samaritans followed that. But you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. This is one of the most well-known differences between Samaritans and Jews that any irreligious Samaritan would be familiar with. Now, she may have more Samaritan practice of religion than, than I'm giving her credit for. But she's, she's saying something that is kind of common knowledge that the Jews' worship was centered around the temple. And you'll see it all over the Bible. And the Bible's not about the Samaritans. They're kind of an adjunct to the Bible. And the Samaritans wanted to make it, no, it's not about the temple down there that Solomon built, that God let him build, that God said his presence would be there. It's up on this mountain. 
And Jews would just completely dismiss Samaritans because they didn't even worship God in the right place. When Jeroboam set up the place to worship up in those mountains, he put two golden calves up there. Not the ones that Moses, the one that Moses uh, people did, that golden. These are different ones. And he said, these calves are Jehovah God and worship here. And Samaritans have been arguing this for a long time. And you know, uh, you repeat a lie often enough, it becomes truth for your culture. And then you compare what the Jews say to it. And theirs is new to you when you hear it after you've grown up a Samaritan. And she says, you Jews, it's just, it's just like, who could know what's right is what she's saying. You say worship down there. We say worship up here. If you're going to get me talking about religion because you're talking about morality and I've had five husbands, it's just, you know. Who knows, who knows who's right? And he says, you know. You, this is what he's saying. You know what's right. And you haven't been right with God. I'm not going to argue with you about places to worship. I'm going to talk to you about whether you really worship God. Because the root sin, all sin, is rooted back to we are like Adam and Eve worshiping ourselves. We, we trust only ourselves and we are very unsettled about that, but we're a mess with it, but we do it. We are God of our own life by nature since we fell into sin. And woman, you've, you've been all by yourself out here. Not, you've been not worshiping God at all. It doesn't matter what place. You don't even worship him at all. This is what he says. Woman, believe me, a time is coming. When you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. The church is about to be born, and, and it's not going to be located in Jerusalem. So it's everywhere, right? He says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. You want to know what that living water was? It's salvation. I've not come to condemn you by pointing out you've had five husbands. I've come to save you. I'm here as your Savior. Salvation is from the Jews. Remember how the whole story started? Are you a Jew talking to me? You Jews say that you must worship down in Jerusalem. And Jesus said, hey, don't discount. You know, I didn't, in a way, I didn't discount you when I came up here. Don't discount the Jews because I am the born of the Jews, the tribe of Judah, that was a promise. Salvation comes from the Jews, but the salvation is for all people, not just Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. They are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. It doesn't have to do with your culture, woman. It doesn't have to do with our races that we're from. It has to do with deep in your heart, do you really know God? And you don't. You just know yourself and religion and people, and you don't trust anyone. And God wants you to know him. And the Spirit wants you to learn to trust that he loves you and that he sees everything about you, your sins. But he loves you and came to redeem you from the guilt of those sins. That's what he's saying. They're all packed in those words, still in that inviting language. He's going to tell her more later what I'm telling you, what we've learned in our life already. And then she's, this is what I love about verse 25, is we get to see 
what Jesus saw all along because he knew, he knew her. One time it says in the Gospels, he doesn't need to know what's in the heart of anybody. He knows what's in the heart of everybody. He knew that below all of that ignorance and stubbornness and cultural confusion that she had a singular hope that there was really a Messiah that she'd heard about both Samaritans and Jews would talk about and that when he came he would be the one man she could trust and he would lead her away from all of this this life that was miserable she had a messianic hope. And so she says to him, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. That was a little more Jewish statement than a Samaritan statement. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. I have that hope. Then Jesus said, declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. At that point, you would want to see more conversation, but it's, it's real life. It's not uh, a homemade drama. It's real life. The disciples come back. They've been in town. He's talking to a woman in public. We don't do that. She runs off, gets her friends, and come back. Just then, the disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? They were used to Jesus breaking the mold. Then leaving her water jar. Remember, she has a long, that's a big, that's a big task every day to come out there, go down the stairs, get the water and bring it up. Now that's, that's completely gone. My life is completely turned upside down. I have met, I think, the Messiah. And now t the moment is all about faith and hope and worship. She says, she, she left her water, town, her water jar. She went back into town and said to the people, and probably a woman with five husbands and living with a man doesn't usually go around talking to people anymore. She goes and talks to everyone. Come and see who, the one who told me everything I ever did. I didn't hear him tell her everything she ever did. Maybe he told her a little more, but she knew that he knew everything she ever did. And she said, could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. The rest of the story is he stayed there a little while and he taught people. And it says many people were saved, not because of what the woman said, but because of what Jesus taught them. And it all had to do with exposing their need and forgiving them and loving them. Jesus doesn't go around talking about our faults because he loves to make us feel bad or win an argument. He doesn't come to argue. He comes to redeem. But we have this way, especially us religious people like she was, we have this way of making it about everything except repentance. But anything that's truly spiritual is, Lord, I'm sorry, and I, I'm a sinful person, and I need forgiveness and I need your presence and I need your promise and I need hope and I don't have it. I, I, it's just like the water. I have to keep coming for more. I, I can't produce it in myself. I have to keep coming back to you, but I, I don't have it. And that's the whole meaning of the Christ is that he has it. She came there about all about herself and trying to defend herself. She left being all about Jesus and being hopeful in him.
And he wants you during Lent to know that, that it's all about him and not about you. But once you come and you each day and give your sins to him and you're forgiven, you're loved. And he did it. It is finished. That's Good Friday. That's the other end of Lent, right? But right now, we're at the beginning in Ash Wednesday. So I hope you're sitting by the well with him and you're thinking, he sees everything about me. I'm not hiding anything. Nothing. I'm never going to be good enough. But that's okay. He didn't come here to tell me to be good enough. He came here to tell me he was my Messiah. I'm, I'm him. You're forgiven. Cost him his life. We will face death like he did, like she did, but we will not face the death that he did because he did. We know that. So we come in repentance. When you get the ashes, you can come forward. You can put your hand out if you want on your hand or your forehead, or you can stay seated. But the ashes are a symbol that I need a Savior, and I have one. And I'm forgiven, but I'm sober and serious that I need one. And it's a way for us to live in the faith and spirit and truth, spirit and truth about ourselves, the truth about God, and the truth about love and faith. Amen.